Welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Alex Blake, director and founder of Kida Consulting. This interview is the result of a very inspiring and effective webinar that I attended a few weeks ago, organised by Alex and his team, on how grant-making practices have changed following COVID-19. Alex and I speak about this and touch on a number of things that trusts and foundations are increasingly looking for from the charities they support. So whether you're helping your organisation to fundraise or perhaps represent a trust or a foundation yourself or other grant maker, this one will certainly be of use to you. But I would also say that it also offers a general appeal and some universal truths about the language and key components that charities should be thinking about when communicating their message and their very reason for being. This episode is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People. So without further ado, here is Alex Blake speaking about positioning your charity in line with grant maker trends. Welcome to Charity Chat. I'm delighted to... Uh, to welcome our guest, Alex Blake, director of Kida Consulting, director and founder of Kida Consulting, I should say. Hello, Alex. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. So um, thanks again for being on the show. And, and please, could you maybe start by telling our listeners what Kida Consulting do and how you're supporting charities in your day to day? Yeah, sure. Um, so at Kida Consulting, um, we help charities to secure the funding they need to make a difference in the world. So. We do that broadly um, in two ways. First is our trust fundraising service. So we, we work with charities to help them secure grant funding. Um, so it's uh, I really enjoy this both in terms of learning about the charity's work and, and really getting under the skin of different causes, helping them build their case for support. And then, of course, having, having got the bids in and seeing them get the funding they need, really, always really satisfying. So some charities work with us um, on a short-term basis, either to get their trust fundraising program started, or if they just need some interim support, whether there's a bit of additional capacity needed in their team, or you know, they're, while they're recruiting for a permanent member of staff. And, and others work with us on an ongoing basis because they get really good return on investment and, and they don't need to recruit a member of staff. So, you know, for some charities, it works really well just to work with us in that way. And others just, just ask us to help out on some of the really major bids um, and, and they work on the kind of regular stuff themselves. And then the second area of our work is the strategic consulting. So that's where charities might want an independent view or a or for us to bring our kind of specialist knowledge and expertise um, to a particular challenge or opportunity. So it can be your typical kind of help develop the fundraising strategy or kind of review the existing program. Um, or it could also be more outward looking in terms of reviewing what similar organisations are doing, identifying trends in a you know in in major gift fundraising, for example. Such a wide range of stuff that people look at. I mean, we've had. One where we're looking at a local branch of the national organisation, considering whether it's feasible for them to set up as an independent organisation rather than being part of that federated yeah. structure and kind of looking at that fundraising feasibility around that. 
another small charity that was growing significantly wanted us to look at their organizational structure and see if that was kind of fit for purpose as, as they grow and develop. So it, it would get quite a nice balance from those kind of two different sides of the work, looking at that kind of strategic side of things and, and also doing the kind of hands-on bid writing and, and helping get those funds in. So every day is a bit different for you and your team from the sounds of it. Yeah, if you um, if you get bored easily, then um, can <laughs> A good, uh, good way to go. Fantastic, and and I guess you know the times that we're living in at the moment. There's, is there an increase? Are you seeing an increased demand for the work that you you do on both of those fronts? The charities that we work with on an ongoing basis, we've been really busy helping them, um, and, and there's been plenty of demand for for us to help. There's been lots of kind of emergency funding programs, lots of work to do with existing funders. So we've been really busy and and with all of them, you know, been really successful. I think in in most, if not all cases, we've we've probably raised more for them than we would have done, you know, in in a regular year. But then in other ways, you know, there are lots of organisations, probably more so the bigger ones where, you know, because they've got such a, a high level of income lost and they're looking at making redundancies and, mm. and those sort of things, you know, lots of kind of freezes on recruitment and, and spending and so on. So some of those types of clients that we, we might usually work with are, are not kind of bringing in external support at the moment. No, small charities that are, are looking for help because they know, you know, they need, they need, to get some of that expertise in to, to help them to kind of navigate the kind of current situation and what funders are looking for and, and just to have the capacity to to write bids as well as managing with increased demand. So it's a really it's a really mixed bag, you know, of, of a, undoubtedly charities that are really struggling, both in terms of the kind of smaller ones that are, are really at risk and then the really big ones that you know, it, it's just such a big dent in their income that, you know, it's it's inevitably resulting in redundancies. Uh, and then equally, there are others that are, are kind of relatively unscathed by it all. And kind of, you know, of course, there's an impact. You know, we're all impacted in terms of the change to our kind of daily lives, apart from anything else. But, you know, some of, I mean, some charities financially doing better this year than they usually would, because yeah. actually... They're, they're accessing more grant funding than they usually would and, and they didn't have some of those other income streams in the first place that are the ones that have been really hard hit. Some that have, have raised more than they would have done in a normal year but are still incredibly anxious about what next year brings because mm. um, while they're while they've done well they're kind of feeling like well sooner or later you know something's going to kick in and, it, and things aren't going to be so good for us and yeah I, i'm sure there there will be challenges for them next year as well but yeah like i say it's, it's a really mixed bag Kiva Consulting is clearly very busy and i realized that uh, one thing we haven't talked about is webinars and and the one i attended was was some, it sounded like there were quite a few people involved in that, but it's and there was some interaction there, and it was clearly a, a, a kind of a big interest in the topic around um, what charities can do to build relationships with trusts and, and develop existing relationships as well. Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean we've so we've covered a few things in terms of the webinars, and you know some of the earlier ones were more 
specifically around kind of responding to COVID, emergency funding appeals, and then looking at recovery and so on. Um, and what we've started to do now more is to focus on grant making trends. Um, and I think we'll, we'll continue with that being a, a bit of a kind of umbrella topic and, and run a series of those. And generally, we're inviting people to speak who are either working at a grant making foundation or are a trustee or, you know, work with funders um, in some way uh, so that, you know, it, it just gives our audience, which is more kind of fundraisers and charity leaders, the people that are applying for the funds. Yeah. Um, it gives them some more insight into actually not just the kind of um, what's on the website and, you know, the questions asked in the application form, but what some of the thinking behind that, you know, what are, what are funders talking about? Um, you know, what are they thinking about? What are some of the kind of key themes for them and, and exploring some of that and some of those kind of changing practices. So not uh, not doing the kind of meet the funder type format that you see quite often and, and asking, uh, you know, specific questions about applying to them, but having more of a kind of big picture conversation about, you know, what, what are funders looking for? What are the big issues for funders? And, and obviously at the moment, um, a lot of that is around you know it's COVID related because you know that's the kind of that's the big issue that people are primarily dealing with but we've also been looking at um, some of the some of the other kind of big topics that grant makers are looking at and are exploring amongst their their own kind of boards of trustees and their own grant making staff so I mean before COVID hit some of the big topics in that sector were looking at climate change looking at equity and inclusion looking at the investment side of things and you know whether they should that should align with their grant making and their charge objectives looking at kind of impact measurement and that side of it uh, so there, there's kind of there's lots of really interesting stuff happening amongst funders but of course the the kind of big thing at the moment obviously is how they've responded to covid so if you think back to the first lockdown when pretty much overnight and kind of you know relatively out of the blue for us all you know within the space of a couple of weeks we've kind of gone from COVID being in the news much yeah. more so to them being locked down and for charities the impact being that all income from trading is gone you know shops closed mm. cafes community centers not able to get the kind of venue hire fees and things all those kind of traditional community fundraising activities from coffee mornings to the big events like London Marathon and stuff, all, all of that income gone. And then, you know, being really clear, there was a massive funding crisis. I mean, the estimates at the time were 4 billion. I think they're, they're much higher now. Uh, so the government's announcement was 750 million. It's obviously never going to cut it. Furlough scheme and other things were problematic for charities in that while shops and things are closed, the demand for support has gone up hugely. So it's not like you can just put everyone on furlough. Mm. The grant making community were really responsive to this, uh, really proactive way before the government announcements. There was a statement put out by London Funders, um, which is a, a kind of network of funders in London, put out a statement showing their commitment to support um, civil society through having more unrestricted funding, relaxing the kind of restrictions and reporting requirements around existing grants and so on. That was put out and I think within kind of first few weeks or so, 
there were a good couple of hundred funders had signed up to that from across the country. And I think it's over 400 by now as people have kind of continued to, to sign up to that commitment. And a number of them gave additional funding to their existing grantees as well as that kind of uh, flexibility. A number of them gave big, big gifts to the National Emergencies Trust, which then got it out through the local community foundations to, to small local charities. What we saw around kind of April to June time was when the bulk of the kind of emergency funding programs opened. And while, well, not everything was perfect about them, there were, I'd say there were kind of three really clear positives for applicants um, in, in comparison to the kind of status quo. So one, there's a lot more unrestricted funding being offered, which is always something that charities are asking funders to do more of. Application forms were much simpler the vast majority of them were really straightforward and the, the funders were making much quicker decisions. So rather than that kind of wait of three, four, six months, mm. um, you know, people getting back to you in a matter of weeks. And funders got their, got their money out to charities to support that COVID response work and to help them survive the crisis. So it's been interesting having seen that different way of working that now, fund, you know, some in that, that kind of community are now saying, you know, why is it only in such a crisis that we've mm. funded in this way? I saw there was an interview of, I think it was Sonal Patel at the um, GMSP Foundation, it was um, being interviewed by the Marshall Institute at, at the LSE. And she was saying, you know, why, why were we able to give out money so quickly now? And historically, we haven't been. You know, why are we so slow? Is it for our benefit? Is it because we think we'll have greater impact that way? And and also spoke about the kind of short-term impact reports and metrics. You know, is, do we think we're going to achieve greater change because of this? Or is it that it gives us comfort in the way we do our philanthropy? Mm. And these, these are the kind of questions I think are really interesting. And this is the sort of stuff that we're, we're trying to kind of um, get people discussing on, on these webinars and things. And and trying to highlight, you know, some of those kind of conversations, which, uh, you know, unless you follow this stuff, you you might not necessarily know that funders are kind of thinking through. And there's been um, there's been some really great work from IVAR, the Institute for Voluntary Action Research. And they've got a really great space kind of between operating charities and grant making charities. Um, so they they produce research reports and convene groups of funders to explore practice and the work they've been doing they found there's kind of real appetite and enthusiasm for maintaining some of these recent changes particularly i think amongst some of the staff and the, the kind of big foundations that have people who are kind of you know whose role it is not just to process applications but to look at the way they're doing things and to think about the kind of policy and learning side of things. Is there anything to suggest that some of these larger funders, if they're thinking about these things and changing the way they're doing things, is there any evidence that that's having an impact on maybe smaller funders? Do, do, do smaller funders follow what larger funders are doing and, and learn from that? So. Some do and some don't, I guess. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it, I suppose the, the grant making charities like with, operating charities you know they're not a homogenous group mm. they're not all going to act in the same way and you can't make those kind of sweeping generalizations about them sure. too much i mean i suppose one of the things that we tend to see is that yeah you do see that kind of follow through so some of the kind of changes you see with big funding programs from national government and from 
national lottery funders and then from some of the kind of big uh, foundations that are giving away millions per year and have kind of uh, teams of staff you you kind of see these trends then kind of come through to the rest of the kind of grant funding sector and certainly in terms of the smaller funders that do have a website and they do have a bit of kind of criteria and process to them they'll they'll follow that um, I mean there are always going to be lots and lots of small family trusts the way they're making decisions it's probably much more similar to the way you and I might choose to, sure. you know, make a twenty-pound donation to yeah, a charity. Yeah. They're kind of, they're looking at appeals and they're making decisions based on what what motivates mm. them to give the most. So they might be given hundred pound. They might be given a thousand pound. You know, they might be given fifty thousand pound, but they're just not really thinking about it in that strategic kind of way that the bigger funders sure. are. And Alex, in the competitive world of trust and foundation fundraising that we're talking about, what are your top tips for charities to demonstrate their impact and value to funders? We've developed a five-step framework for trust fundraising. Um, So this covers identifying the best prospects, building your case for support, writing applications, building great relationships with funders and managing the program effectively. Um, So each charity will have strengths and weaknesses across those five areas um so so my tips will vary a bit depending on that but i think to to kind of generalize for me the the case for support is always the key um if you if you if you can have if you can build a really strong case for support then you can you can improve on some of the other areas afterwards but if you don't have that then you can you can do the best prospect research in the world, but if you can't make your case, then mm. you're not going to be successful. So, I mean, if you if some of the listeners are responsible for grant funding in their charities, we've got something, a free resource on our website that they can check out in terms of those five areas. So we've got a trust fundraising scorecard, which basically you answer 40 questions, all quite straightforward, you know, it's yes, no, multiple choice. Um, which assesses your program shouldn't take more than 10 minutes and then you'll get a free report with recommendations on how you can improve your score against each of those areas so if people want to jump on the website and and give that a try then they can get some specific recommendations based on kind of how they're doing right now Um, so that's just kedaconsulting.co.uk and they'll be able to find it from there they'll just see there's one of the main headings is the scorecard so in terms of some of the kind of general tips for your case for support you want it to be clear compelling and comprehensive is the kind of three c's that we talk about at a kind of really top level so clear is just about using plain english being succinct avoiding jargon you know we all kind of get caught up in the jargon of our own particular kind of calls so making it really easy to read not using the kind of fanciest language you can think of but you know just thinking about if you if you give it to your nan to read is she going to understand what you're talking about comprehensive means that while being succinct is important you do need to have specific details in there and you need to have evidence um, to back up all of the assertions you make so to give an example in terms of being specific and, and this is useful in terms of thinking about those application forms with tight word counts and things as well. Um, rather than saying you need £30,000 to run a befriending programme, you might say 
£30,000 would fund the staff cost of delivering our befriending programme, which would reduce isolation for 100 older people through a, week, a weekly trip out with a volunteer. So it's about getting those kind of specific outcomes and outputs. Mm. Um, you know, so it's still a, quite a short sentence. Um, there's not a lot of explanation there, but it, it just gets some of those specific details. Uh, sometimes you can see there's lots of narrative there that actually it's difficult to see, okay, what am I actually paying for if I fund this project? You know, are they meeting up with someone once a week, once a month? Are you supporting 10 people, 100 people? And then compelling means having that emotional impact and urgency to make funders feel compelled to, to support your work. And it's that classic thing with trust fundraising of remembering that actually, although, although there's a process and there's some boxes being ticked, it's another human being on the other side of, you know, reading what you've sent them and, and people make those kind of decisions much more based on the heart than the head when it comes down to it. It's, you need to have those details and the evidence in there um, for it to be assessed and, and scored highly. But it's kind of, you know, it's how you make people feel when you're reading about it um, that really makes a difference. So it's it's getting those stories in there. It's, it's stories as well as stats and really harnessing the voice of the beneficiaries of, of your community, demonstrating what their needs are and how your work's making a difference. Um, and, and it's always much more memorable. You know, people always remember stories rather than statistics. I think it's been seven years or so since I worked at the National Autistic Society and I've I can't remember all the stats that we used to use around kind of prevalence figures and impact and, and that sort of thing now, but I can still remember the individual stories of, you know, if someone says to you, you know, why is, why is your helpline really important? And it was about the people working on the helpline having that really specialist knowledge of autism. Mm. So when a parent calls up and they can't get their child with autism ready for school, because as soon as they start to put their socks on, um, it ends up in a huge meltdown because of the kind of sensory discomfort. And the person on the helpline, because they'd worked in the service and they knew about this stuff really well, they said, oh, actually, you know, I found it can help if you turn the sock inside out and then put it on and do it oh, that wow. way. Um, and, it, you know, it's just something really little like that and yeah, unexpected. it makes a big stuff. difference. Yeah, yeah, it makes a huge difference. And, I mean, for, for any parent that's tried to get their kids ready for school and you have one of those mornings where you have to repeat yourself and you end mm. up, you know, everyone leaves the house feeling stressed and upset. Yeah. And, you know, that's just in a family, not with any challenges from disabilities and things, whereas if you if you add in a kind of complex case of autism to that and then it's, you know, it's huge meltdowns and everything, you know, just yeah. that one little tip is uh, life-changing for people. And it's that kind of stuff, you know, you remember the stories, but you don't remember the stats so much. So that kind of, that third C is is vitally important, you know, being as compelling as you can and, and showing that urgency as well. One of the key things, of course, is, is making sure that case for support is bang up to date and really reflects the latest needs your community faces and how you respond into those and and that's often in new ways due to covid now and it, you know it's not going to be enough to rely on the same old statistics around the prevalence of a disease or deprivation stats or even you know your kind of case studies from a year ago and that sort of thing it's you know you've got to show grant makers that you're 
you're really kind of in it with with the people you support and understanding what their challenges are right now and why they've been particularly impacted and in what way and how you're responding to that this is kind of one of those areas where actually in many ways it can be easier for a smaller charity who might have less resource than the kind of big charities and the big names but they're often that bit closer to the community that they serve and, and often in, you know, in, in closer contact. So my advice really is to, to bring your case for support alive with that voice of your community, uh, make it emotive and back it up with evidence and learning. And there's various different ways that you can do this. So, I mean, from some of the charities that I know well, there's one small local charity that um, provides support in, in their centre, which they had to close in the first lockdown, and they've not been able to reopen since then due to social distancing measures and, and the type of people they support. With them, they were, they were phoning around all of the parents and the families who use their service and just asking them how they're doing, giving them some advice and some tips um, on how they can cope with the kind of challenges they're facing with having their kids at home and and some of the kind of support that they would offer in the center just kind of talking them through step by step how they can put some of that stuff in place and that sort of thing that's one of those ways that they're adapting their service to meet those new needs but also through having those conversations the learning that they then feed back into the organization and that we then get into their case for support that then you know brings it right up to date explains what the challenges are because of covid and how they're dealing with it and how they would want to use funding to 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 just keep going in practice but also to to do things in different ways to support families with with the new challenges they face another uh, kind of small to medium local charity um, that we support who work with families living in poverty and really facing a range of quite complex needs and they work with the families who who really need to engage with services but don't they started to deliver home cooked meals to the families that they usually support um, because they couldn't provide that face-to-face support and particularly in the first lockdown when the kids weren't going to school they were using that meal delivery service to then also do welfare checks on the doorstep um, to see you know where were members of the family up and dressed in the afternoon or were they still in their pajamas you know were the were the kids looking like they'd been fed properly were were there any signs of abuse and some of those kind of safeguarding things that would they would get picked up at school mm. but um, when people were at home you know so doing some of that kind of stuff and then of course Again, the learning from doing that um, and, you know, being that close to the people they support, then, you know, feeding that back into learning about how to how to adapt their services and also, you know, getting some of those individual examples into then reporting back to funders and, and putting new bids in um, to, to provide different types of support. But it's about kind of having that culture of learning in the organisation that then, you know, feeds that learning back into the continuous improvement, but also into the fundraising side of things as well. So whether that's in small charities, generally it's it's one of the leadership, probably the director writing the bids or working with us, or in a larger charity, it's feeding it back into the fundraising team so they know about this kind of stuff and, 
I mean, we, we mentioned before about smaller charities have it being a bit easier sometimes just because there's, as apart from anything else, there's less layers of management. So, you know, it's it's easier for that information to come back through to the people involved in the bid process compared to in some of those much larger organisations where, you know, they're just a bit further away from it all. It's a bit of an unfair question for you now. What would be your forecast for the next couple of years for how trust fundraising may evolve further? And what can charities do to start gearing up for this? Yeah, no, it's a fair question. It's um, I, I did uh, actually write an article on this um, the other week, and I, I did say at the time it's quite foolhardy to make any predictions at the moment. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think in terms of changes for, for grant makers, uh, Certainly, let's hope that some of those positive developments are here to stay in terms of quicker, simpler processes and more unrestricted funding, as well as uh, the kind of continuing shift away from rigid impact measurement to more impactful learning and demonstrating how that shows that you're, you're making a difference and you know what you're doing as an organisation. It's worth mentioning there's some really great initiatives around in grant making in the UK at the moment, just as a, a bit of kind of recognition of of some of this thinking and, and emerging practice that's going on. So Association of Charitable Foundations, ACF, had their Stronger Foundations projects, which have been going on for, for a while, and you can see some of the outcomes from, from that work on their website. IFAR have been doing some great work, as I mentioned before, with a range of funders reviewing their practice. The Grant Givers Movement um, is a really good one, um, set up by staff at foundations looking to improve practice has um, just launched the Funders Collaboration Hub. As it says, you know, looking to collaborate more. Research from Collaborate Kirk and, and Toby Lowe at Newcastle Uni, now at Northumbria Uni, um, looking at um, some of that stuff around the kind of limitations of that kind of impact measurement and, and how, you, how you demonstrate the difference you make. So it feels like there's a real energy around looking at how grant makers can make the most difference with their funds and how they can actually think about how they can best serve the charities that they support and, and shift in some of that power dynamic a little bit. So I feel optimistic to a certain degree about that and I know I've generally kind of focused on some of the positives a bit more and I know um, as, as you mentioned the other week in, in your episode with Charles Pegram, us fundraisers are definitely optimistic animals by nature but I think we've, we've got to be realistic as well and certainly one of the things that's almost certainly going to be true next year is that trust fundraising is going to be more competitive than ever and it, it feels like it gets more competitive every year anyway but I think clearly for for a while yet those income streams like trading and events are going to continue to suffer and the charities that have been dependent on those sources of income are looking more at raising more grant funding. Also with um, with Brexit, um, you know, the, the EU funding charities that, that secured a lot of EU funding for their work, it's, it's still a bit unclear, but it, I think it's inevitable that no matter what the UK government does to replace those funding streams, it, it's not going to be at the same scale. So I think that, that means those charities will look more to trust and foundations as well. So that's another kind of inc increase in competition there. So I think funders are inevitably going to look for ways to manage this increase in demand. So hopefully we won't see too much of a kind of tick box approach to that. 
Um, but what I think we will see is more funders narrowing their focus, being strategic about that and, and looking to support specific issues or demographics. So I think, I mean, one of the obvious things for charities to do there is to, to really kind of take note of that and not to try and shoehorn their work into, into it because maybe technically they can, but if you know it's not really what the fund is looking for and you know things are incredibly competitive, mm. it's, it's just a waste of everyone's time doing that. So I think whatever happens, the, the things that I've said uh, about developing a great case for support are still going to be true. You know, some of those kind of classics are always going to be required in terms of evidence in the need, you know, being clear, comprehensive and compelling. So you've got to make sure you've at the very least got the basics right and make the case for support as strong as you can. And then focus on building great relationships with those funders who do focus on, on the area you work in and also put that best case forward to those general funders as well. So you're always going to have the likes of Garfield Western who support such a broad range of causes and charities and, and have huge amounts to give away. So I think there, there's definitely one shift there in terms of that kind of increase in competition and, and some of the impacts that will have. And then I think one of, one of the other areas I mentioned about um, impact measurement um, and seeing this kind of shift, albeit, a very gradual, slow one, but I think a slight shift away from that kind of rigid impact framework approach that we've seen for the last kind of 10 years plus to more thinking about impactful learning. And I think you, you can see some really encouraging changes at some of the big kind of leading funders. Um, I mean, the National Lottery Community Fund, you, you look at the changes to their Reaching Communities programme over the last year or two, um, you look at Esme Fairbairn Foundation and some of the changes they've been making and some of the, they've, they've reviewed the way they work and they put some of those reports out there. Uh, so you can go on the website and, and look at some of that work that they've been doing. So I think, you, and again, um, the, the research from Collaborate and, and Toby Lowe and a, a number of funders involved in that work. So some really encouraging stuff, but at the same time, at our last webinar, Emma Beeston made a really good point about you know, some foundation trustees working in, in business and finance in, in sectors where there's a lot of talk around ESG investing at the moment. And, you know, it's much more looking at those kind of scientific quantifiable metrics. And so, you know, equally, there's lots of people that are still going to be looking at how do you measure the kind of impact of the, the investment or the grant that you're making. And I mean, there's always going to be questions around the difference you want to make. Of course, you know, that's we're all looking to demonstrate how our charities are making a difference in people's lives and why, why ours should be funded um, and also what your approach to evaluation is. So whether it's about measurement or learning, you do need to be asking those questions of yourself around, you know, what data are you collecting and what does it tell you, both qualitative as well as quantitative. So again, it's stories and stats. And then importantly, how do you use that data to learn and what are you learning and how is that improving the way that you work in meeting your charitable objectives? Um, so answering those types of questions, I think, is much more likely to give funders confidence in your organisation than being able to say X percentage of beneficiaries agreed that your service made a positive difference mm. to them. You know, it's again, it's really getting to grips with the detail and, and the kind of the reality of, of the, the challenges people face and the, the way that they engage with your service and what difference it makes. And then importantly, how you 
how you take that learning, how you continue to improve the service, you know, and, and giving concrete examples of that, you know, how what have you changed about the way you work based on that feedback. Uh, there's no point getting the feedback and then just going on doing the same thing you've been doing for the last 10 years. Another kind of hotly debated topic at the moment um, for the grant making sector as well as the broader sectors around equity and inclusion and that's focused both on how funders make their decisions and who they fund um, as well as how charities involve the communities they serve in their decision making. So again COVID has, has brought this forward in some ways in that we've We've seen that evidence that despite black and ethnic minority communities being disproportionately affected, they've not received a proportionate amount of the funding available. And, and you know, it's been highlighted that that's, that's the case on an ongoing basis. You know, it's not COVID specific, but in those communities and, and the charities serving those communities and, and being led by them just don't receive enough funding. And, you know, what are the reasons for that and, and how can how can funders improve the way they work to um, to um, get the funding um, to those organisations? And it, I suppose it, it remains to be seen to what extent foundations might pursue those kind of models of participatory grant making and involving people with lived experience in their processes. Um, I know some do. I know um, at Paul Hamlin they've been looking at this and we've, we've got a couple of guests at our next webinar have been involved in that. So we'll, we'll be hearing some more about that soon. But I think it, it's it's also, you know, whether to what extent they do it in their own organisations, they'll certainly be continuing to ask their applicants how they engage the people they support and how they have a say in the services that they access and, and a say in how the, the charities run. So I think it's it's vital that you can be specific about those things. So I think if I could give one final tip, it's, it's really that you need to ensure the voice of your community comes through loud and clear um, throughout the case for support, um, from explaining their challenges through to why your service is the best solution and what difference it makes. And you mentioned just a minute ago the webinar. Is this something that's open to everybody? Can people take part or join, join that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've, we've got another one of our webinars on trends in grant making coming up in early February. Free to attend. Anyone anyone interested in the topic can attend and find out more. We're going to be joined in the next one by Jan McKenley, a trustee at Paul Hamlin Foundation. Ngozi Lynn Cole, who was formerly a director of the National Lottery and is now working with various foundations as an advisor and Sarah Ridley, who's director at the London Marathon Charitable Trust um, and has decades of experience in grant making both in the UK and the US. So I think those three guests are going to really be able to give us some great insights into, um, into some of these kind of topics that we've, we've been talking about today and, and probably know far more than I do about, about it as well. So um, that's going to be... Um, Something you can you can go on our website and book. So if you go on to kedaconsulting.co.uk and just go to the training and events page, you can sign up for that for free. And uh, you can also watch the video from the September webinar if you want to check that one out as well. And then, as I mentioned earlier as well, on on the website we've got that free trust fundraising scorecard there as well. So um, if people just click onto that page, they can go through that process as well. Fantastic, Alex Blake. Thank you for contributing to Charity Chat. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking to you. Hope your listeners get something out of it. big thank you there to Alex Blake for sharing his knowledge and expertise with us on Charity Chat. Do check out the Trust Fundraising Scorecard that Alex mentioned, which can be found on the Kida Consulting website. A link is also on our website, charitychat.org.uk. I've used this myself, and this is a very useful tool for any trust fundraisers out there, and indeed any charity leaders too. It gives very concise and helpful information that can be used straight away and of course it's free which is really good of them. Uh, Alex mentioned that more funders are showing an interest in ESG investment of course that stands for environmental social and governance or sustainable investing um, which is obviously seeking a positive return and long-term impacts on society so that's ideal for some charities so definitely worth considering. The funders are out there and perhaps COVID-19 which has taken so much from us both personally and professionally could also be helping to improve grant funding practices now and hopefully in the future too. What is clear is that we all owe it to the people and causes that we're trying to help to do our very best to express the need, the impact, their stories and how with support we can make a greater difference and make a better world. So a big thank you to Alex for all of his hints and tips. I, for one, have been reminded of a few things. And I'm sure we've all been, to some extent, jolted out of complacency by Alex's words to employ them in our next trust or foundation approach. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear from you either way. And if you do like the show, please do give us a, a, a rating on your podcast platform whatever you're listening to us to that would be great too we'd appreciate it we'd like to get to more listeners and and spread the word of uh, these experts that are coming on the show time and again and giving up their free time it's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors now our platinum sponsor charity people for enabling us to share these insights expertise and best practice across our sector giant squid audio lab for sponsoring our podcast kit magda axamit for our beautiful website, check it out, charitychat.org.uk. And finally, Forest of Fools, for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. Please do continue to keep on doing what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.